Hello and welcome to the Vine Life Podcast. I'm Tony Clark, your host. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Jeff Zwierink. He's an astrophysicist, author, speaker, and a senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe. And again, Reasons to Believe is an organization dedicated to demonstrating the compatibility of science and the Christian faith. How are you today, Jeff? I'm doing very well, Tony. Looking Really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. Again, it's an honor to have you on, and I just want to thank you for your time. Uh, I'd like to, if I could quickly, just go into a little bit of your background and history. Uh, you're, one of your title, many titles is as an astrophysicist. How in the world did you become an astrophysicist? What led you down this path? Well, from my earliest memories, I just love science. Uh, you know, and then the way I characterize sci- what a scientist does is they just figure out what's going on, why things work the way they do, what's happening. And so from, you know, being three years old and watching my dad do chemistry demonstrations down in the basement to uh, playing with watches to figuring out how things blow up, I, I just love figuring out why things work. Uh, my dad's a chemist, and so when I was in high school, I was going to go into chemistry and was planning on that. I, I, I love chemistry a lot uh, until I took physics my senior year of high school. And for as much as I loved phys- or chemistry, I love physics. And so I went into college. I went into a, I got a physics or went to Iowa State to get a bachelor's in physics. And while I was there, uh, actually, Hugh Ross came and spoke at uh, Iowa State University. And I was growing as a Christian and kind of thinking about careers and where to go and realized, hey, I could be a professional Christian and a professional scientist because science and Christianity work together. And and the overlap of where that happened, at least in my discipline, seemed to be more in the astrophysics. So picked up an astronomy minor in a, in, as an undergraduate and then went into astrophysics as a graduate and in graduate school. And basically the way I would describe myself as an astrophysicist is a physicist figures out why do things work. An astrophysicist just uses a telescope to do the same thing. So uh, I, I love being an astrophysicist, love learning about the cosmos and uh, just what it, get, what it tells us about who God is and, and how things work out there. Um, it, many times we hear that uh, a study in the sciences or scientists, uh, or, or they, they, they basically have no faith or they, they don't have a faith in the God of, of the scriptures or the Bible. But you mentioned your Christian faith there. Um, you told us about how you came to Christ, or I'm sorry, how you came to be an astrophysicist in some of your history there. Tell us about your, your belief in God. How did you come to faith in the God of the universe? Well, I mean, I would say a whole lot of what started my journey is that my parents became Christians when I was three or four years old. In fact, I remember uh, seeing them baptized in the 102 River outside my hometown. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, my dad's a chemist. He taught at the local college. And uh, one of the other faculty members in the chemistry department uh, witnessed that he and my, my mom and dad, and they became Christians. And, and their Christianity just permeated our home. Uh, you know, I learned what Christianity was about and why we think. Um, I personally made the decision to trust Christ in an Awana program when I was in the fifth grade. Uh, just heard the gospel message one night, and it resonated, realized I needed to make that choice. It wasn't enough just to, to live in a family where that's what my parents believed. And so I made that choice. And uh, just over time have been grown in fits and spurts. When I, when I was in high school, I went on a, a ski camp and kind of was challenged to grow, you know, to take, take my faith more seriously. But really the place where my faith started to bloom and flourish and really be my own. And I'm thinking about, hey, how do I do this? What does this look like? Was after my senior year of high school, I had an opportunity to take a summer mission trip 
uh, actually over to Europe. And if I'm honest, I went on the trip because I like traveling. I thought Europe would be kind of cool to see. But uh, it was a group called uh, Royal Servants International that uh, were teaching people, teaching particularly teenagers what it means to be a missionary and what that looks like. And I uh, just started reading the Bible, understanding what Christianity was about, how to articulate my faith to other people, to tell people about the gospel so they can know. And that's where I really began to say, yeah, this is mine. This is the way I want to live. I want to live and honor God and tell other people about him. And so uh, that's kind of, you know, that, that now as I'm going back to school and thinking about, okay, I'm, I'm a, a physicist. What does that mean? That's kind of where I'm thinking about all those things, trying to figure out how do they integrate? What do I do with that? Uh, lots of interesting questions came up in the time, but uh, lo and behold, here I am today, an astrophysicist who's a scientist at the same, or an astrophysicist who's a, a Christian at the same time. Let's talk about the compat- compatibility of being an astrophysicist and your Christian faith. And, and I've, I've got one of your quotes here, so I'll read that as well. So you've stated that studying the sciences increases your faith in the God of the universe. And you've also stated that while many Christians and non-Christians see science and faith as in perpetual conflict, I find that they integrate very well. They operate by the same principles and and are committed to discovering foundational truths. Can you break that down for us? What exactly did you mean by that? So, I mean, there's this dominant narrative out in the public today that, uh, you know, science, that's about logic and facts and reason and faith. Well, that's about belief and feelings. And just the reality of it is that's not what Christian faith is is ever characterized as. Uh, you know, I, I love the statement by Paul in 1 Corinthians where, you know, he's, he's talking and saying, you know, if Christ hasn't raised from the dead, our faith is worthless. It, and what that to me is a statement of is that our, our, we, we are not believing something because we want to believe. We're, we're seeking to believe what is true because if Christ raised from the dead, then that changes everything. That's a foundational truth that, that tells us what's, what's true in the world and what we ought to believe. And if he didn't, then Christianity is really just kind of a, the, the, the latest, greatest scheme to get people to believe and manipulate them. And, uh, you know, so it's two very different views of that. And, uh, you know, I would say I'm a Christian because I'm confident that Christianity is true and I place my faith in that. And, and then the question is, how do I know that Christianity is true? Well, I've been taught it by my parents. As I've investigated places where I thought Christianity might be wrong, I found out that, lo and behold, it held together well. And one of the places where I have done that is I'm a scientist, and so the science says certain things about how the universe operates. Well, the Bible says things about how the universe operates. And so, in principle, those two could be in conflict with one another. And if that were true, you'd have to decide, all right, which one's correct? And is science correct or is Christianity correct? What I have found is that every arena, every topic, every issue, every discovery that's come up that seems like there's this tension between science and Christianity, as I've gone in and said, all right, what does Christianity really have to say about this? What is the Bible really saying? And what does science really have to say about this? Lo and behold, every time I've done that, whether we're talking about the multiverse, life in the universe, uh, is there a beginning to the universe, all of those things, I realized, wait a second, the Bible and science are saying the same thing. So as we study God's revelation in Scripture and we study God's revelation in creation, they're saying the same thing. That, to me, gives me great confidence 
that Christianity is true, and it's a reliable source in which I can confidently place my trust. Jeff, let's continue along this discussion. Uh, You've also stated that biblical authors describe a universe that matches their latest scientific discoveries. How does this fit in with what what you're talking about? How does uh, maybe a Bible verse or a Bible context or a Bible passage fit in with our latest scientific discoveries? Well, I think, you know, when you start in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, that's not God created the heavens and then God created the earth. That heavens and the earth is referring to the totality of the physical realm. So it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that's that's a, a question that we can investigate scientifically. Did the universe begin to exist or not? Um, and one of the things that I find fascinating is that you look over the last 100, 120 years, and scientists in the early 1900s thought the universe was eternal. And lo and behold, throughout the 1900s and the 2000s, what we see is that scientists are repeatedly finding evidence that points to our universe having a beginning. Um, God, the Bible talks about a universe which is so reliable that it accurately reflects how confidently we can trust God to keep his promises. Now, the way I would say it from a scriptural perspective is that uh, God upholds the universe so reliably that we can talk about things like the laws of physics. Well, fundamental to the way science works is that the laws of physics don't change or vary. Uh, You know, the way the heavens behave yesterday is the same they will behave tomorrow And so that's why we can do science. So the Bible talks about a universe that is governed by constant laws of physics, if you'll allow me to use that terminology. And lo and behold, when we investigate the universe, we find exactly that same thing. And in fact, if that were not true, we would not be able to investigate the universe because we can't go out and see or touch and measure stars. All we can do is measure what we see here on Earth. And we assume that the laws of physics in operation here on Earth are the same as what's out there in the cosmos. Well, that's a very biblical way to look at things. In fact, that idea is what led Einstein to develop his theories of relativity. And, you know, one of the, interestingly, one of the most talked about attributes of the universe is that God is stretching out the heavens. Yeah, I, I don't know whether the biblical authors were thinking and had in their mind the expansion of the universe, but I find that language very remarkable because it matches what we see when we study creation. And so, you know, just throughout Scripture where it talks about how creation behaves, uh, we find that as we go out and investigate scientifically, lo and behold, that matches what we find from the scientific record. So just on my end, from a, a layman's perspective, it seems like God made the universe in such a way that if you have an open heart and you study his creations, you could see his handiwork. Is that correct? Yeah, and I, I would very wholeheartedly agree with that. In fact, I think that's that's really what Romans 1 is getting at. It's it's not like God's created things and he's kind of hidden everything and you have to investigate all the details. And once you get down to this hidden piece of knowledge, then it'll become clear. That it's just clear if it's out there. And as humans, our tendency is to suppress the truth. Uh, you know, I, it's not like I've just got a better way to understand the truth. It's like, for whatever reason, I have chosen, and it's like, yes, I see God's handiwork in creation, and it's just everywhere. Um, and as a, as humans, we tend to suppress that knowledge because we don't like it. In fact, you know, I mean, I've been a Christian for many years, and still at the end of the day, there's a point to where 
I don't like what God says sometimes because he's infringing on my autonomy and I try to suppress what he's revealing to me. So it's a universal thing. But yeah, God's glory is out there for everyone to see, to anyone who wants to see it. And I think if we're honest as believers, followers of Christ, uh, most of us will have that same struggle at times. I, I would rather create a universe differently than God did, but thank, thank God I'm not God because I would screw it up. Well, he certainly knows a whole lot more than we do, so I'm glad he's got that responsibility <laughs> and not me. Absolutely. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit, Jeff. Um, how did you get uh, affiliated with Reasons to Believe? You mentioned that when you were in college, I think, was it Iowa State, that Hugh came and spoke? Uh, how did you How did you get hooked up with Reasons to Believe? Yeah, so when I was in college, it was kind of my sophomore year was where I started reading through Genesis uh, you know, and in fact, in my in my Bible, the the footnotes down there at the bottom say these have got to be twenty four hour days. And so, uh, you know, believing in the inerrancy of Scripture, I said, all right, if that's what the Bible says, then that's where I live. But I do have to wrestle with this tension in that these physics classes I'm taking, and and it wasn't like it was just you know splattered on the walls throughout the physics classes. But it's clear that the science seems to indicate the universe is much older. And so I'm I'm wrestling with that tension. And I, you know, I wonder if, you know, maybe time isn't as linear as we think, that it's more exponential. And so what looks to be really long times are actually six days. And so I'm wrestling with that idea. And uh, when I was a sophomore, uh, Campus Crusade, which is now Crew, the organization I was involved with, invited uh, this speaker to speak at Iowa State and had a chance to listen to him. And he was talking about how Big Bang cosmology aligns with Scripture and the universe is tuned for life to be here. And so, uh, being one of the interested people, I, you know, when I, he, he volunteered and said, "Hey, if anybody's interested in talking, come talk to me." So I went up and talked to him afterwards and. Uh, arranged a meeting where I went up and met him on campus and we had about an hour's worth to talk. And one of the questions I had was this very question of what do I do with, you know, the Bible says those are 24 hour days. Science seems to say it's much older. You can talk about the big bang all you want, but there's this fundamental difference here. How do we deal with that? And, you know, in, in the course of our conversation, Hugh had mentioned, you know, when you look at what Christians who hold scripture in high regard have to say, you know, there are some who say those are 24-hour days, but many of those same Christians who hold Scripture in high regard say, no, those are meant to be longer periods of time, or or they're not even telling us about time. And I, and I realized the tension I had was not that there was a conflict. It was that I didn't have all the information. And so, uh, you know, through my, through my course, I've just really, where I see those areas of potential conflict, realize I need to go study more. And I, that, I love the, the freedom that that brings me, but... So that was my first interaction with Reasons to Believe. And as I went on to graduate school, again, kind of thinking about what kind of career, where is God leading and directing me? As, as I was finishing up graduate school, my major professor actually retired about six months before I graduated, moved out to Pasadena. And he said, you know, hey, Jeff, there's this organization that looks at how science faith get together. You might want to connect with them. And lo and behold, it was Reasons to Believe. So when I moved out to California about a year and a half, two years later, I connected up. They had a, a volunteer apologist program where you could get some training and interact with some other folks. And so I did that. And over the course of about five to eight years, that ultimately ended up to me joining the staff of Reasons to Believe back in 2005. So you've been with Reasons quite a number of years now. It is. I think I'm going on uh, year 17 wow. now. So, so uh, let's change gears once again. Um, I want to thank you, Jeff. You've written about the perils of space travel, and I read some of those uh, articles. 
Uh, and that some of that really obliterated my sci-fi fantasy. So I want to thank you for that. Uh, growing up as a, a long-time science fiction geek, I guess, uh, you talk about the perils of space travel and potentially traveling through space will be pretty much a fantasy. Can you expand on that just a little bit? Well, part of the, the discussion I had there was just wrestling with when you look at our our movies and our culture, sci or space travel is just a given. It's like, given enough time, we're going to figure out the technology. I mean, whether it's Star Wars, Star Trek, Marvel, what you just move throughout space, and it's and it's really no big deal. And so, part of what I was wrestling with then is okay as a scientist, how do I think about that? And you know, I'm sorry if I've ruined things because I, I you know I go in and I watch science fiction, and it's like. I want to be drawn in and suspend a little bit of reality, but I also need to have some sort of anchor, and I like to think about it. So, But generally, I kind of look at it just for the enjoyment, not for is this scientifically accurate. But one of the things that stood out to me is that I read an article not too long ago that uh, you know we launched these spacecraft uh, back in the uh, early 70s that are you know, the Voyager probes, and they've been traveling you know, 60 miles per hour, you know, I forget whether it's 60,000 miles per hour or 60,000 miles per second off the top of my head. But they're going very, very fast. And they are just now reaching the boundary of our sun's influence. Uh, you know, so it's the heliosphere. And so, you know, it just got me struggling. It's like, wow, they've been traveling for decades at pretty high velocities. And they're just now getting out to the boundaries of our solar, of, of where our sun's dominant influence is. And and as I was reading, I recognized that at these same velocities, it's going to take about 40,000 years to get closer to another star than to the sun. That's not to get to another star. That's just to get closer to another star than the sun. And it's going to take about another 40,000 to get there. And so realizing that just the time scales we're talking about are very dramatic. So, you know, we don't have, uh, you know, we can't jump to light speed or we can't have warp drives or those sorts of things don't exist and the technology may never exist. But, but even if you do, you, know, you say, all right, well, maybe we're going to develop technology that allows us to move th through space very quickly. So traveling at something maybe a tenth uh, the speed of light. Well, uh, you know, another uh, interesting discussion I'd read was, you know, it, it, it's in a book called XKCD, which is a great uh, book if you're a physics geek who likes talking about physics of bizarre things. But one of the chapters in there was talking about what happens if you throw a baseball at the speed of light. And you think, okay, that'd be kind of interesting. But the, the net effect of throwing the baseball at the speed of light is not too far behind the pitcher's plate. You've effectively detonated a nuclear bomb, that that's the kind of damage it would do. And so that got me thinking, well, you're out in space traveling at close to the speed of light. What happens if you encounter a particle, you know, just a, a BB or even just a dust grain? Well, that, that, the, the amount of energy that dust grain is going to deposit in your ship as you now encounter it is enormous. And so you're just going to be ripping your ship apart if you run into anything. And so, uh, you know, I think there are ways to maybe say, well, there's optimism that we could figure out how to address those issues. But the energies you're talking about, I, th I think uh, just even getting a, a relatively small ship up to something like a tenth the speed of light the energy required to do that is roughly the energy budget for the United States in a year. So, you know, your enormous amounts of energy, tremendous amount of damage if you collide with anything, incredible amounts of time if you don't deal with those. And so space travel is a really difficult thing. So let's not just assume, well, it works in the movie, so we're going to figure it out. It's a pretty challenging topic. 
but one that's fun to look at nonetheless. So as a follow-up to that, I have to ask, Star Wars or Star Trek? Yes. <laughs> no, I, I think if it comes down to it, I, I really have engaged a lot more with the Star Wars series. But I do really like Star Trek. There's a lot of very interesting things out of there. In fact, you know, I, I don't know whether you, know, I, you always have to be careful who likes what and where. But, uh, you know, I like the next generation uh, for reasons I can't really explain. Maybe it was just what was on TV when I had a chance to watch. But, uh, you know, it's interesting watching the evolution of how the captains of the ship do things. Um, but I, I like both because they really explore different kinds of issues. And uh, both yeah, of them are. I, really I tend good. to lean toward Kirk instead of Picard, but that's just my my own uh, opinion there. But <laughs> that, that's funny. Well, Kirk is a lot more yeah. aggressive, and Picard's a lot more diplomatic. That, that is sure. true. That is true. So, uh, talking about outer space, talking about ETs, um, you've got a book called "Is There Life Out There?" I believe, and one of the questions is: Would the discovery of ET disprove Christianity? Now, let me ask you, does the Bible leave open a door for this possibility to discover E.T.? Would that basically ruin our Christian faith, or would it be fine? Can you explain? Well, again, the dominant narrative out there is that if we find E.T., that's kind of game over for most of the world's religions. Because, you know, and, and the idea behind that is, well, religions are just developed, they're local, they're developed by man, and so they, they can't account for these things that people weren't even thinking about. And, and what I found fascinating as I was looking into that topic, because my original thought was, no, the universe is designed by God for human life, and it's created for us to be here, and the chances of anything ever happening to a lineup to have a planet, this is the only place where there's life in the universe. And, and uh, often when I get into a situation like that, I, I, I think God puts a, a question in my mind. It's like, well, yeah, but what happens if scientists actually find life out there? What do I do with that? And so it got me thinking. Is this something that Christianity handles? Is it something that uh, is really a problem for Christianity? And so, again, my, my thought was, let's go out and investigate and see what's going on. And, and what I found in those investigations is that people have talked about life out of the universe for a long time. In fact, you know, there's a, a book I, I found where it just kind of documents various resources where people were talking and asking the question, is there life out there or not? And what I found as I was reading through that is that you've got people like uh, Galileo, who's a very strong Christian, a devout Christian uh, at, the, at the dawn of the scientific age. And he's saying, you know, no, the Earth is the only place where life exists in the universe. And he had his reasons for doing that. And Kepler, who's also a very devout Christian at the dawn of the scientific age, who's arguing, no, all the planets have life on them. We're going to find life on Mars and the moon and Jupiter and all of the planets have life because that's where God's created it. And, and here you have these two devout Christians who are having the discussion that take very different viewpoints. And, and what I realize is that Christians have thought about this long before science ever was able to weigh in on the question. And Christians have recognized that Scripture doesn't talk a lot, if anything, about other life here in this universe. It talks about the angelic realm. But it talks a whole lot about what God has done with human life here on earth. But it just really, it doesn't say anything, but it also doesn't rule it out. And so Christ, what I found is that Christians have thought a lot about this. And even if we were to find sentient life like humans of, of that sort of class of life, that Christians have thought about how that would fit within Orthodox Christian thought 
for centuries, if not millennia, before science is even able to weigh in on the topic. And so Christianity has this robustness about dealing with life beyond our solar system in a way that's theologically sound, that upholds the authority and integrity of Scripture, but yet recognizes that God may have created life out there somewhere. And I think that's it makes it a fascinating theological as well as a fascinating scientific question. Yeah, and you've also spoken about uh, life on Earth being very exacting, or the conditions for life on Earth being very exacting. Can you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, so when we look at our planet, uh, you know, there's almost this notion that you know life is so abundant Wherever life could exist on Earth, it does. In fact, it even exists in places that we didn't think it could. Um, you know, where there's water, we get life. And so there's there's kind of this idea that, oh, life just happens wherever it can. Um, but when you look at what is required or what are the conditions that allow Earth to host life, you find that there's a remarkable symphony of things that are working together uh, to, to make life habitable or earth habitable. For example, got to have an abundance of liquid water. Um, liquid water is the, or water is the ideal molecule for hosting the biochemistry of life. And it's ideal for a planet. It serves as a global thermostat. It, it, uh, the range where it's liquid just corresponds to the biological activity of carbon, which again is the, the element on which you're going to build life. There is no other element in the periodic table that can produce the chemical complexity that carbon just naturally allows. And so you've got the, the reactivity of carbon just aligning with the uh, where water is liquid, the temperature range where water is liquid. And so you ask the question, just even asking this fairly simple question, what goes on on the Earth so that Earth has a temperature range where water can be both solid, liquid, and gas all at the same time for extended periods of time? And when you look at what's gone on on Earth, the fact that water has remained, or Earth has remained in that temperature range where water could be liquid is remarkable because the sun's luminosity is slowly getting larger. We look, we look at the sun now, and if we ask the question, how bright was it, you know, three or four billion years ago where we have evidence of life being on the Earth, and we find that the sun was anywhere from 30 to 40 percent dimmer than it was today. Uh, you know, we're talking about global climate change and one degree, one or two or three degrees Celsius making a big difference. You make the sun 30 percent dimmer without changing anything else, and Earth is just going to be a frozen ice ball uh, you know, temperatures way below the, the, the freezing point of water. And so the sun's luminosity has increased over time. Uh, so something had to be different in early in Earth's history to maintain the temperature, because what we do find is that over the last 4 billion years, to the best we can measure it, Earth has remained within about a 20 degree Celsius window so that liquid water could exist that whole time. And so we find that as the sun's luminosity has increased, the plate tectonics has dramatically reshaped the surface of the Earth. And that has a thermostat effect. As more continents arise, that can bring the temperature down. As, as temperatures, uh, you know, plate tectonics can heat things up. And so you've got the Earth going from the sun being 30 to 40% dimmer up to its current rate. You've got the oceans uh, or, or, or the continents moving from a Earth being almost an entirely a water world to where it's now covered about 30% worth of continents. 
the oceans have gone from being uh, green and just filled with iron to these deep blue where you've got a lot of oxygen in it. The atmosphere has transformed gases tremendously, the types of life on Earth, which again impact Earth in, in abundant ways. And what we find is that in all of these dramatic, huge changes, Earth has maintained this very constant temperature range where life can thrive. And so, uh, you know, it's not like, oh, we just get water, therefore life exists. Life, in fact, could have exterminated life on Earth because life so dramatically changes the planet. Yet we find the tectonic activity, the atmospheric activity, the geologic activity, the uh, astronomical activity, and even the biological activity are kind of working in concert to make sure that Earth is this abundant biosphere where a thriving, diverse array of life has existed for a long time. You know, there's a lot of fascination uh, with with ET extraterrestrials, especially uh, in our media age. But I've heard you speak about, and, and Hugh Ross spoke about this as well, uh, demonic influence or demonic activity accompanies a lot of these visitations by ET. Can you talk to, to me a, l- a little bit about that? Well, and, and that, that's a kind of two sides of the same coin is this idea of is there life out there? And I think the scientific angle of, you know, going out and exploring what are the possibilities of traveling? What are the conditions for a, a planet to host life? But then there's this other side of the coin where uh, people or there are records of purported UFOs, aliens visiting Earth, or unidentified, you know, objects happening in, or things happening in the atmosphere or even on the Earth that kind of defy explanation. And what I've you know found in talking to my boss Hugh Ross, who's investigated a lot of these, very often most of those UFOs ultimately end up being traceable back to natural phenomena. You know, natural being there's uh, you know lightning in the atmosphere that looks like a ball. There are uh, meteorites hitting, there are fires, there are weird atmospheric phenomena. It may even be natural in the sense that uh, military craft are being put up in, uh, up in the sky. So it's, it's physical phenomena that, you know, it's not like happens in the natural world, but humans have created some of these things. So the bulk of all of those UFO phenomena ultimately are explainable when we get down and just investigate. They're, they're explainable by natural causes. But there does seem to be this residual set of phenomena which we can't account for that look that they look to be real real phenomena but not natural phenomena and uh what's interesting again you know the book uh, that my colleagues uh hugh ross ken samples and mark clark wrote lights in the sky and little green men they investigate that or what in their investigations they find that these residual phenomena which are not accountable by human and natural activity the the characteristics of all of those seem to align with demonic behavior. And to me, that's a, that's a piece of evidence pointing towards the truth of Christianity. Because if Christianity is true, you know, there's this physical realm, there's, there's we're, we're life, we're created to be uh, in relationship with God, but God has also created this angelic realm, uh, many of which are in service to him, but there are many of which who've rebelled and who are in, in opposition to him. And so it makes sense. That's what I would expect to find if the Bible is true. And so I, you, know, I, I, you always have to be careful delving into UFO phenomena, but it does seem to provide a piece of evidence that points towards the truth of Christianity. Yeah, that's an amazing aspect that most folks don't think about, I believe, is there's a possible demonic influence of some sort with uh, folks that are really into ETs and, and they've had visitations and they've been abducted and, and things like that. That's something uh, 
that you guys have talked about that I, I really appreciate. Um, Jeff, let's change gears a little bit once again and talk about who's afraid of the multiverse. And this is another one of your books. And we'll have links to your books and, and reasons, um, information as well below this video. But I remember watching a series a number of years back. It was called Fringe. And during a couple of those seasons, the characters were able to open up a portal and they went to an alternate universe. So when they went to this alternate universe, they, they interacted with themselves, basically, just from a different universe. And then the same person, they were slightly different in the other universe. For example, I think that JFK was still alive. I think the Beatles never broke up. So things were similar, but they were strangely different. Now, does is, is this have anything to do with the book, Who's Afraid of the Multiverse? Does it tie in anything with an alternate reality or an alternate universe? Yes, it does. And that's those are some of the questions I investigate in there, uh, because what I found, again, is that uh, when I first heard about the multiverse, this was one of those topics where I really had one of those first big questions of what if this is true? Because the way I'd been talking about it, it's like, ah, oh, the multiverse, that doesn't exist. There's no there's no scientific evidence for it uh, that and, and, I, and I began to think, what happens if we live in a multiverse? What if we discover the multiverse is true? And so, again, you know, thinking about, okay, Christi you know, what does Christianity have to say about this? And what does the science have to say about this? And what I find is that what I found is that there are different ways to think about the multiverse. And, and my quick definition is if you can define the universe as everything that we can possibly see, um, you know, given that the speed of light has a certain value, the expansion of the universe is a certain rate, and the universe has a certain age, you can define a region that's about 50 billion light years of, of, in radius. That, that's the observable universe. And then the multiverse is just anything beyond that. And there's different ways you can think about that. It could just be a whole lot more of the same stuff. It could be other universes where the laws of physics might look different. Uh, you know, there, there's different ways to think about that. But one of the interesting questions that arises in that is if the multiverse exists, and, and I will say straight up, I think there's actually good reason to think a multiverse exists. And if I were a betting man, I might, I'd actually bet that the multiverse exists. But the key question is not does the multiverse exist. It's like what does it fit more comfortably in a theistic worldview or in a naturalistic or atheistic worldview? And one of the questions that arises in there is, if the multiverse exists, does all, do all of these other realities where Jeff Zwerink, instead of becoming an astrophysicist, he becomes an axe murderer? Do, do those sorts of things happen or not? And that's where you know, my Christianity informs how I think about it, because as I read scripture, Jeff Zwerink is not just a physical arrangement of atoms, that Jeff Zwerink is a physical arrangement of atoms in union with a spiritual spiritual part as well. So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a physical and a spiritual being in union. And so in the multiverse, you may have the arrangement of atoms that looks like Jeff's wearing, but the only place Jeff's wearing exists is where God's created him here in this one. And so it raises a lot of these interesting questions, which uh, in a naturalistic scenario really hit at some things that many people think are very foundational, identity, um, justice, free will, what does that mean if there are these beings scattered throughout and everything that can happen just happens? There really is no free will. It's just this is the roll of the dice. This is what happened here. Uh, you know, I may be a scientist here, but another one, I may be an axe murderer. Um, you know, and, and what do you do with all of that? Uh, so 
I think there are some deep philosophical issues that Christian, if you put the multiverse in a Christian worldview, it answers those deep philosophical issues in a very fulfilling way. Whereas if you put it in an atheistic worldview, those very troubling issues arrive and we don't, arise and we don't really have good answers to them in that worldview. So isn't the multiverse used uh, by some, I guess, atheistic uh, scientists to, to get away from that there's a creator that holds us accountable? Do you see any um, – am I making sense here? Is that used by – yeah. Oh, yes. There, there are very definitely some people who say, well, you've either got God or the multiverse. And so the multiverse is a way – to deal with the things look fine-tuned, things are rare. It gives us a way, or it gives some people a way to say, okay, I can deal with all that because everything just happens in the multiverse. And it is a way of escaping God. I will say this, though. A lot of the people who are investigating whether a multiverse exists, whether they want that to be true or not, are thinking about it of how do we actually evaluate, is it scientific, is it testable, is it true? Can we find evidence to support it? And I will say this, this is... Uh, you know, people have varying, leads, varying degrees of comfort or discomfort with this statement. But we talk about a, we live in an inflationary Big Bang universe. If inflation happened, there is a whole lot more stuff beyond the bounds of what we can see, uh, a whole lot more compared to what we can see. And so that's, a, that's one kind of multiverse that if inflation happened, that kind of multiverse exists. And if our understanding or our mechanisms for how inflation work are correct, then there are other bubble universes out there as well. And so I think there's very good reason to think a multiverse actually exists. To me, the key question as a Christian is not does the multiverse exist or not, is does it fit better within a Christian worldview or an atheistic worldview? And, and every bit of research I've done indicates that Christianity fits or, or a, a multiverse in a Christian worldview is a very exciting, fulfilling, has the answers, and it fits really well. It's very constrained and uncomfortable in an atheistic worldview, largely because you have to deal with, are humans just physical beings, or are they something more? And, and a lot of the evidence seems to point to us being something more. Something more. And uh, Jeff, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, you believe one day God will make a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, now, as an astrophysicist who studies the, the current universe, do you ever think, and this, I'm just curious about this, do you ever think that you may be given an opportunity to study the new heavens? Do you ever think about that? I, I certainly hope we will be able to. Uh, you know, one of the things that has struck me is that, you know, God has revealed himself in Scripture. God has revealed himself in creation. I am convinced that we can study Scripture, and ultimately what we're, you know, what we're studying is God's revelation. That as we study God's revelation through Scripture, we are never going to exhaust what there is to learn about God through studying his revelation in Scripture. Because God is infinite far beyond anything we could ever do. We're, finite beings are never going to match and, and come to some sort of complete understanding. So there's always something more to learn. Well, if, if that's true of God's revelation in Scripture, why is it not going to be true of God's revelation in creation? Now, his revelation in creation, this, this part of that revelation will be wrapped up and have a new heavens and new earth. 
but I don't see any reason. He told us to go study this one to, to be able to interact with it well. I don't see any reason why we're not going to be doing that in the new creation as well. And, and I'm very optimistic and hopeful that somewhere in the new creation there's something like supernovae because I would love to go witness one of those up close because that's arguably one of the most powerful things that happens in this universe. And to be able to see that up close, that would just be too cool for words, especially if I knew I wouldn't die while it was happening, which is what's going to happen here in this So year. that would be better than Star Trek or Star Wars, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, Jeff, in conclusion, um, you're an astrophysicist. You're a, you're a believer first and foremost. You're an author, you're a speaker, you're a senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe. But what do you like to do for fun, apart from all of this? So, you know, people ask me that question a lot. And the reality is what I like to do for fun is things that build my family. So I love going out and going camping because you kind of get out of way and you're able to just talk and enjoy, enjoy the scenery and, and enjoy sharing that with people. Um, I love my kids play sports. I love going and watching their sporting activities, love being able to help and help them learn how to do better, encourage them when things go poorly. Um, I love being able to just hang out with my family and, uh, and talk. So we uh, like traveling back to the Midwest to see my family and my wife's family. Uh, most of the things that I really enjoy are centered around my family in, in one way or the other. But I, I love being outdoors. I love fishing. I love camping, love canoeing, love stuff like that. Uh, but really, uh, if I can do that with my family along, we are having a good time. And it sounds like you've got your priorities in order. But, uh, Jeff, again, I, I want to thank you for your time today. And, again, Jeff Zwierink, he's an astrophysicist. He's an author, speaker. He's with Reasons to Believe. Thank you so much, Jeff. Really enjoyed our time. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you.